0: Today is an important Sunday. Today is the first preview, preview service, it's called, for our first church plant, North City Church. They are worshiping right now at the Weber Community Center. And I hesitate to tell you this. They have air conditioning at the Weber Community Center. Yeah. So this begins the rivalry between North City Church and Mill City Church. Um, but I actually also tell you that just to say that over the summer they're gonna have a few more preview services. It's just kind of figuring things out and then they're gonna launch in the fall every single Sunday. And so um, I do encourage you to maybe go to one of the preview services to go in the fall, not necessarily because at this point you're discerning switching churches, but to be there and help them fill the room, welcome some neighbors. We had people do that from the church that planted us. 11 years ago and man was it helpful for them to fill this really large room so they're not in a room this big but we invite you and encourage you to, to head over to north city at some time uh, either this summer or this fall and just join in and be there for that with them and join in their worship time uh, we're so proud of them and the the 30 so people that went with them so today we're going to continue on in our conversation on the minor prophets that we're calling the books that we don't read um some of you have told me look pastor Steph, i have read these books it wasn't personal, okay? If it ever feels personal, it's usually not. So I'm just gonna clear that up right now. But some of us, either we've read them or we haven't, or if we did, we don't know a lot about them. They're hard to understand. Today's uh, book is actually one of the most obscure books in the whole Bible, okay? So that's why we're gonna dig into them this summer. We're going to have just one more after this. And uh, we've been talking about the minor prophets uh, in in this entire series. We're not going through all 12, but there's 12 of them. In fact, oftentimes scholars call them the book of the 12 because they kind of come together. And they're speaking to this group of people, the people of God, the people of Israel at this specific time. So Ryan can put up that time uh, timeline for me really quick. And you can kind of see in the history of israel these numbers aren't exact but just looking at where these minor prophets were speaking into an interesting time in the history of israel and over quite a few years and so we're in this specific book that we're talking about today Zechariah, where he is speaking like the other prophets warnings from god words from god to god's people some of those words are very hard to hear some of them are very encouraging and kind of everything in between But what I hope we hear is God cares enough to try to communicate to the people that he loves. That's a big deal. That's not necessarily how most other views of God's have ever been that the God of the universe is trying to speak to these people, and yes, offering some warnings, saying, hey, you're doing some things that are gonna hurt yourself, you're hurting other people, this is not what God cares about, this is not what God made you for, It's it's a warning. And so that's what a lot of these prophetic stories are about throughout the major prophets and also the minor prophets. Most importantly, people were not caring for those who were on the margins people who are poor people who are marginalized people who are oppressed those who couldn't fight for themselves this is the thing that throughout these minor prophets we see breaking god's heart more than anything and so this i feel has been a really relevant conversation for us as we're talking about these minor prophets we've also uh, invited you to consider micah 6 8 one of the most common passages of scripture when it comes to the the way we think about minor prophets many of you have heard this passage before if you haven't we'll put it up on the screen really quick i love this because it's actually saying there's a lot of warnings that god has but god also says what god's hoping for god's saying these words god has shown you O human what is good and what does the lord require of you to do justice to love mercy and to walk humbly with your god that word mercy there we actually just sang it earlier another translation for it is loving kindness with that dash in the middle we were singing it in that song and this i think is what god's saying this is what i want for you ah but this isn't happening Wrong things aren't being made right. In fact, you're contributing to the wrong things when it comes to justice. Loving kindness is not your motivation, and I don't—you're not really walking with me. And in fact, that's what this book talks about quite a bit here. So it's important for us to realize these books are not written to us, but I definitely think that they're written for us. They're something that we can engage with. But we are not the people from that time frame and that timeline. But we're people who want to try to understand what God's saying to us, right? So that's what these are so helpful. They help us in our, our hope to try to listen to what God might be saying to us in our life. Even though we're not those exact people in that exact time, there's a lot we can learn from it. So that's what we've been do- jumping into together. We also wanna mention that on our website, millcitychurch.com, if you do go to uh, millcitychurch.com training blog, we've actually listed all of these books where you can click on a link and read them. We've also put videos from the Bible Project, which is an awesome project if you haven't checked it out. Um, Those are online there. I'll show you a little bit of one today. You can watch all of those videos. They're usually five or six minutes. You can read all of those books. It usually only takes five or six minutes because they're called minor prophets because they're short. And then you can say at the end of the summer, these are the books that I read, not the books we don't read. And that would be awesome for all of us, I think, to be able to engage with it, even though I think it's difficult to read them sometimes. So if you've been with us, I think you see how re- relevant that these books are for us today, even though it sometimes takes us some work to really get there. So today, as you have every other week so far, bring your brain, bring your mind, bring your heart, and let's engage with it together. Today, we're gonna look at the book of Zachariah. So before we do that, let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome you once again to this place. May your presence make a difference in our lives. God, we thank you that right now, the North City community is worshiping in this other location just a few miles from here, because God, you are a God of multiplication. You are not a God of scarcity. You are a God that said there's always more love, there's always more room, there's always more space. And so God, we pray for your hand to be upon that community and god we pray for the students and the staff and the faculty of sheridan school as they're on this summer break and also those who are leading summer school and we pray god in the name of jesus that you would bless them that you would empower them that you would make a difference because we get this hospitality here we ask for that in the name of jesus here in the school speak to us today god just as you spoke through these prophets thousands of years ago may we hear your voice today it's in jesus name we pray amen all right so my community time questions are always you know hit or miss but if you're somebody who remembers your dreams in the morning, could I see a show of hands, the people who actually remember your dreams? Okay. Is there anybody who it's like really rare that you remember them or you, you'd almost say you don't dream? I've heard people say like, well, brain chemistry says everybody's dreaming, but it's like, if you can't remember it, what does it even mean? I don't, I don't totally get that. Would any of you admit that some of your dreams, and I'm not gonna ask you to share any, but are like a little weird? Okay, whoa, I think more people that, that was the most, most participation there. So that's interesting. I, I don't necessarily think my dreams are that weird. If I'm really honest with you, if I remember them, they're usually kind of like stressful or serious. Okay. But my husband JD's dreams, totally bizarre and ridiculous, which kind of explains our personalities like a little bit overly serious and a little bit bizarre and ridiculous. It's really awesome, it's really great. So he, he tells me these dreams sometimes in the morning and I'm not a morning person, so I'm just kind of looking at him like a little bit cross-eyed, but uh, he's told me some pretty weird dreams. Like for instance, I think just recently, you said you had this dream that you were talking to the coach of the Timberwolves, was it the coach or the owner or something, and, and the owner and the coach was like, I wanna be an extra in this movie that you're making in Minnesota this summer. And you had to let him down that he didn't get to be an extra. It was like a sad moment for him that he didn't get to have that moment. But then they get weirder than that. You have talked about like swimming around, trying to escape dinosaurs, trying to eat you. And then my favorite one that you told was when your bed magically was transported to the line in Valley Fair for the Wild Thing roller coaster. So like somehow in the dream, your bed got there, right? And the embarrassing part is that, well, people don't want someone's bed in the way when you're trying to get on a roller coaster, And they especially don't want someone in their underwear to be sitting there in their bed. And that's why that dream was funny and kind of a nightmare, a little bit, a little bit of both. So if you want some interesting dream stories, don't talk to me, you can talk to JD. He's got some really interesting ones. And I bet some of you do as well. This book is about some really weird and interesting dreams. And that's why I bring that up. But I want you to think about one more question. What are some of the dreams that you have for your life? Like the ones you have when you're awake. Just think about that for a second. Some of you, maybe you can think of that right away. Others of you, it's been a long time since you thought about what you dreamed about for your life. The things you hoped for, the things you cared about, maybe the dreams you have for your kids or for your career. The dreams that we have when we're awake sometimes don't happen because we're busy and and there's a lot going on. But sometimes I wonder about that, I wonder about if we've lost the ability to dream when we're awake sometimes, to dream about the things that maybe even God wants for us in our lives. And what I love about this book is that these eight really strange dreams that Zachariah has and then wrote them down, uh, he must be connected, he must be similar to you in personality because he wrote these things down. And now for thousands of years, people are weird reading these weird dreams. Uh, but he, he's, he's expressing God's, God's dreams. Like they're Zachariah's dreams, but what they mean They're the dreams that God has for God's people. They're dreams about what God's heart is for the people that God loves. And I wanna suggest something right now that I want you just to think about. The deepest, most profound dreams that you have for yourself are nowhere near the dreams that God has for you and that God has for the people of God. And if you felt just like a little bit of cynicism when I said that, that there's no dream you've ever had for your life or for your kids or for your career or your purpose or your meaning that is more meaningful and deep and powerful than the dreams that God has for you and the dreams that God has for us as God's people. If you're feeling a little bit of pushback to that, I just want you to hold on to that for a second as we look at this book together. I I have come to believe, at least in my own life and as I it to be a part of a lot of yours, that God believes in us a lot more than we believe in ourselves. And I think that these books actually prove that. Because if God didn't think that we could, could change or grow or turn around or not step into some of these things, then why would God warn us? Why would God, who thinks that we don't have any future or dreams, tell us, hey, there's more for you than what you're doing, which is what these prophetic books are about. These dreams that Zachariah has are super weird, but before he has any of these dreams, he says something really important that I want us to remember throughout the whole time we're talking about this. He says that what God wants from God's people is that they would return to God. And if they return to God, God will return to them. In fact, it's God's words. God is saying, return to me and I will return to you. Because God's dreams for us in our lives require God's presence. The dreams will not be realized if God is not present with us in the most powerful way. And if we have not returned to God so God can return to us, we don't get to live out those dreams in the same way. But if we return, if we turn around, return, it's kind of this concept of turning back towards God and looking towards God, I think that we can begin to see the dreams and hopes that God has for us and we can even begin to live into those things. But, I don't know about you, but I think turning around and returning to God in certain circumstances in our life is very hard. It's very challenging and we're gonna talk about that today. Let me give you a little overview of the book of Zechariah, just so that we have a little bit of understanding of who he is. I'm gonna walk through the Bible project art pieces. If you've been with us, you've seen these, you can actually just get all of this on their website for free. It's an amazing project. And they actually sell these big sheets of them where you can color them in and stuff, and it's really fun. And so I, I'm gonna explain through those things in just a minute, but we have Zechariah, who is of the priestly line. So he's a prophet, but he's also a priest. So he's coming from this place of someone who had a priest who had been trying to. To create space for people to encounter god which is what a priest was doing they were also seen as a liaison between the people and between god at that time and his book is the most obscure like i mentioned earlier it's also the longest of the minor prophets so that's kind of challenging it's the most obscure and the longest and so that's what we have to work with and that's why you'll see today we're going to just really see a, a, a big overview of it i really encourage you to go back and read it and watch the whole video too but uh, he's writing at the same time as Haggai the prophet that Pastor Mike talked about last week. Haggai is writing to the people after they've been exiled in Babylon and they have now returned back to Jerusalem. And as they're coming back to Jerusalem, the temple that God had had been built for God was in ruins and they were to be rebuilding it. And as Michael shared last week, the people were not focusing on God. They've been brought back from captivity, but they had already lost focus on who God is. And that's why Zechariah is starting with, you've returned to Jerusalem, but you haven't really returned to me. That's a significant thing that's happening here. Uh, it's also pretty interesting for us to look at this uh, definition that's in the, or this description that's in the um, International Bible Encyclopedia. Look at this for a minute. There's few books in the Old Testament that are as difficult of interpretation as the book of Zechariah. No small challenge for Pastor Seth. And there's no other book that's more messianic. Zechariah's book is the most messianic the most truly apocalyptic and eschatological of all the writings in the Old Testament. Hopefully that sentence helps you know why we're about to have a segment we like to call Seminary for Everyone because I'm sure there's a few people that thought, what the heck does that word mean? Great, no problem. Seminary, pastor school, you're all very smart, so let's just take a moment to look at what these words mean. They're not that hard to understand. So here's what they are. Messianic, Messianic means it's pointing towards the Messiah, who we now know, because we're on the other side of the story, is Jesus. Right, so that's what a messianic text would be in the Old Testament. The next word that's in there that's a little confusing is apocalyptic. We hear that used a lot in our culture. When it's in the Bible, it it really comes from the Greek word that means revelation or God is revealing something to people. It's a revelation from God of the future. And apocalyptic literature is a type of genre. A genre that actually doesn't happen a ton in our current time, so it's a little confusing to us. It's oftentimes pictures, like these dreams, and it's often very metaphorical rather than literal. Not always, but often. And then finally, eschatological. You got it. So it it basically means last. It comes from the word last. Last things the things that are coming at the ultimate destiny of the world and humanity. When people say they're studying eschatology, they're saying they're studying the different views on what's gonna happen at the end of the world, the end of time for all of humanity and what's going to happen. We talk about that a lot here at Mill City, actually, and you'll hear me talk about that today, about what we see as the future hope that God has for the world. So let me start by reading Zechariah 1, 1 through 4, and then I'll just bop through those, um, those images on the artwork. So if you have a Bible, we're right in the beginning of Zechariah, reading the NIV version, and this is how it starts. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. This is the, the, the actual quote, now you see the quotes there. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your, your evil practices, but they would not listen. They would not pay attention to me, declares the Lord. There it is, right? This turn, turn around and I will return to you. Let me tell you what is the, the, the Steph uh, interpretation of that concept. When I think about this idea of, of me turning around towards God, returning to God, and then God returning to me, this is how I think about it. Because I, I don't think that God's ever apart from us completely. I think God's presence is pretty strong. It's around us. When we're in our darkest moments, I think God is there. But I think it's kind of like God is standing there waiting for us to turn towards him. And when we actually make that moment and we turn towards God, when I think of God returning towards us, it's like that person who is waiting for the hug. And then when you turn around, they don't wait for you to step towards them for the hug. They come in for the hug right then. Like, I think that's what God's doing whenever we turn back towards God. When we turn back towards God, God is just ready. And as soon as we turn around and have a sense of openness, God comes in for the embrace. That's what I think it means by God returning to us in those moments. That's how I picture it, at least. I'd be interested how some of you might picture it. So let's just run through these slides of these pictures. Um, They're pretty small, so feel free to look it up later if you want. But the first slide is this, this concept, the, the introduction, returning to God, this idea of repenting. And it says that the people say, we're going to repent. But we find out in the story they don't really do that because it turns out saying you're going to repent, which also means turn around, is a lot easier to say you're going to do than actually do. I found that in my life as well. The next slide shows that uh, Zachariah is about to have these dreams. So you see him sleeping in his bed, having these really weird dreams, kind of like a lot of you, it says, like your dreams, they're pretty bizarre. And so the next slide kind of shows all of these different weird dreams that he has. Um, Let me just give you a quick overview of what some of them are. One is about a bunch of horsemen on patrol riding around. Another one is about horns, like animal horns, except they're not attached to animals, they're just floating around. And then another one is there's this woman who's in a basket and then there's two other women holding the side of the basket and they're flying her around because the women flying the basket around have the wings of storks. Okay, isn't that weird? It's super weird. And so he's telling these stories and they all have these deep meanings, which you can look into. There's also one where there's a flying scroll. So like a scroll where there would be like a biblical text on, uh, and the scroll is flying all over the land and it's just taking people out. If you're a liar, if you're cheating people, if you're hurting other people, the scroll is like taking people out, all right? Really weird. And then there's a really important couple of visions and dreams that he has that are about two important leaders. And I wanna point out one of them. I'm I'm actually gonna read it because I want you to hear what the apocalyptic literature sounds like, okay? So there's this vision that he has about this leader named Joshua. Joshua at the time is the high priest. So he's seen as kind of the the leader that is most connected to God. And there's this picture of Joshua in the apocalyptic literature that I want you to hear exactly how Zechariah describes it, okay, so it's in chapter three, if you're following along. So right in the beginning, um, I'm just gonna read the first part of it uh, till verse four. Then he, God, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Okay, this means it's in a nightmare category. If Satan shows up, automatically a nightmare, okay? So Satan is standing next to the angel of the Lord, and the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes, and he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. I think it's really important in this vision, uh, the word filthy here and then the word fine garments. We don't use those words a ton. Filthy is maybe one of the most strong words that you could use to describe something being totally useless, gross, tattered, dirty, totally in, I mean, it's a very strong word. You get what I'm saying here? And then fine clothing equally is a very strong concept. The the most beautiful and wonderful of clothing is being given to the high priest, Joshua. This is an important moment showing how much God cares to be able to take this sin and this brokenness and all of this that's being laid upon God's people, removing it and laying upon a garment that is fine and beautiful and wonderful. Notice that there's nothing any of the humans are doing in any of this, just God. God's the one that's able to do that. God's also already said, I want you to return to me, I want you to turn around, but God's the one who makes that switch. Super important to pay attention to. Then the people say in the next slide, if you put the next slide up there, there's, the people are kind of grieving and they say, is God's kingdom coming soon? We're, we're, we're waiting, is God's kingdom coming soon? I resonate with that question. And what's interesting here is Zachariah does something, instead of answering their question, he like turns the question back to them. And he says, will you be people who are ready to participate in God's kingdom? And I hear that and I think this is a really important question for us. Because I cry out all the time like, God, can your kingdom come? Because these wrong things need to be made right. But I think God's also saying to us, well, hey, so, Are you ready though to join into that if I were to do that? Powerful question, I think, for us. And then there's two more pictures that um, happen where it's showing the Messiah. So in any of these videos, when you see the picture of the little uh, king, that's representing the Messiah, who we now know as Jesus. So we see the first image of the Messiah as king, and it's directly that passage of talking about the king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, which we now know Jesus did, right? And then the second picture on the other side is of jesus as shepherd as a good shepherd but there's other shepherds that are human beings and those shepherds are not good shepherds and they're leading people away from the good shepherd and so at this point in the story a kind of important question is asked and the question is will the people reject the good shepherd forever will the people reject the good shepherd forever We're gonna pick up the video, just a little clip of the video, where the narrator is answering the question, will the people of God reject the good shepherd forever?
1: Chapters 12 to 14 say no. It's another mosaic of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. And they depict the new Jerusalem as a place where God's justice will finally confront and defeat evil among the nations. It's very similar to the same themes in prophet Joel or Ezekiel. But then God also will confront the rebellion within the hearts of his own people. He's going to pour out his spirit on them, he says, so that they can repent and grieve over the fact that they have rebelled and rejected their messianic shepherd. The final chapter concludes with the new Jerusalem as the gathering point for all of the nations. And then this city becomes a new garden of Eden, and there's a river of living water flowing out of the temple, bringing healing to all of creation, and that's how the book ends. And so Zechariah just leaves you to ponder the connection between chapters one through eight and nine to 14. And the point seems to be that this future messianic kingdom of the book's second half will only come when God's people are faithful to the covenant the point of the first half. Reading the book of Zechariah is a wild ride. These visions and poems are full of startling imagery and they do not follow a linear flow of thought. And that's part of the point. It's like history and our lives. It doesn't always fit into neat orderly patterns. But the prophets offer us glimpses of God's hand at work, guiding history towards his own purposes. And so ultimately, Zechariah invites us to look above the chaos and hope for the coming of God's kingdom, which should motivate faithfulness in the present. And that's what the book of Zechariah is all about.
0: Put that last slide up there, the one with the roller coaster, for a second that I I pulled out. It does feel like you're riding a roller coaster if you read through, through Zechariah. It really does. But I love how the narrator concludes that. I love this phrase that he concludes it with saying, look above the chaos and hope for the coming of God's kingdom, which should motivate faithfulness to us in the present. That's what God was hoping for the people at that time. I see that in God's heart for us now, that we would be people who I know many of you feel a lot of chaos right now. And if you don't, probably at some point near in the future, or you just had some, I don't know. What does it look like to be people who don't ignore the chaos but have an opportunity to look above it at the hope that we have and who God is and what God's going to do in the picture that we saw of this future kingdom, this future new Jerusalem where the world, like Habakkuk said a few weeks ago, is poured down, rained down and covered with the presence of God and there's gonna be no more crying and no more pain and no more suffering because all of those old things will have passed away because Jesus says, I'm making all things new. And when we don't, look at that anymore, that's what it means for us not to be looking at God. I'm gonna gonna skip ahead a little bit, Ryan, in the slides. I just wanna go right to talking about what it looks like for us to apply some of what we're hearing here. It's a lot, but I think we can boil it down to there's really only one thing that God's asking for us here in Zechariah. God's asking us to return. God says, return to me. And then as you read through Zechariah, The rest of the amazing things that are are going to be done are gonna be done by God. Put the slide up there that shows this difference. Look at all these things. God wants us to return to him, and then God's going to return to us. God is going to send the Messiah as our king and leader. God is gonna send a, a king and leader that's also a good, loving shepherd. God is going to be the Messiah that pours out his spirit to help us repent. I don't know about you, but I often feel that I actually need God's help to even be able to repent from stuff. God says, I will help you. Jesus is gonna pour out his spirit to help you do that to help you even see the ways that you're contributing to those things and how we repent maybe on behalf of a collective sense of self and the people who often fall short. God forgives us and replaces our tattered and filthy garments with fine garments. Remember, God does that. God doesn't say, hey, if you can really figure out, maybe you could go find some new clothes on your own. God does that. God is the one then who brings the new heaven and the new earth, or in Zechariah, the picture is the new Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, it talks about this this new heaven and this new earth where God makes all these things new, where the restoration project that Jesus has stepped into is finally revealed and finally finished. And so I think this brings the question, how is God gonna accomplish all this? This is being written 400 years before Jesus was to walk the earth. And here is Zechariah talking about all the brokenness and all the pain and all the suffering and saying, hey, but God can do something new here. How? How is God gonna do all of these things? Well, here we are thousands of years later with a little bit more information. We know that the God of the universe chose to do something that no other God has ever been heard of to do. And to become a human, to experience our pain, to experience our suffering with us, to walk this earth, to experience our joy and our sorrow and everything in between to be with us in the midst of these things. But he didn't stop there, did he? We know, this, this picture, this next picture shows you, that what the prophets warned about happened. Some really terrible things that God's people did, some really terrible things that were done to them too. How is God going to fix this? And we see that retributive justice the justice that many of our justice system has. Retributive justice says, well, someone's gotta pay. You pay for what you did, you pay for what you did. Be a good person, because if you're not, then you've got it coming to you unless you can get away with it, right? That's what retributive justice is. That's how wrongs are made right. But God's restorative justice is a whole other thing. God's restorative justice says there's gotta be a way that love could actually be what sets healing in motion. And that's what I wanna suggest to you is most perfectly embodied by what Jesus did in his life, death, resurrection, coming back to life. He's embodying the the only way to to restorative justice to truly be done. His, His death and resurrection does just that. It sets healing in motion in a totally different way. Any other leader, I mean, think about this, any other leader would have used power and might and force to try to fix it, wouldn't they? But Jesus, uses humility and sacrifice and surrender. Any other God that had ever been spoken about merely tolerated humans, but Yahweh God became one and gave up everything to prove that he loves each one, everything. Jesus' death and resurrection are how God accomplished so much. It's how we can be in relationship with God. We don't need a high priest anymore. It's how we can join in the restoration project that's happening now, from now all the way until that future restoration of all things that we hold on that hope to. So when you look around, and what you see is shame and fear and anxiety and so many other things in your life, I wanna suggest that what you're looking at is not the face of God and God says, return to me. Look at me because I will be there to return to you. And I think there's so many things in our life that pull us towards anything else that we can look at, anything else that we can uh, look towards in our life when we're feeling all of those things. I know that this happens to me all the time. There's this sense of security we wanna find in other things. Relationships, uh, career, money, political leaders, uh, addiction. You know, I mean, the big three that everyone talks about, money, sex, and power, right? The things that just grip people's hearts. And so this returning thing might have to happen every day because those things are so provocative, aren't they? Just pulling at you. And so it makes sense that God says, return to me. Return to me. And I will be right there ready to return to you. I don't know for you what it looks like in your life at this moment to turn around or turn towards God's face in one of those areas of your life, I don't know. But I think for most of us, there's an opportunity to do that almost every single day because if we can do that, God's inviting us to be people who can step into participation in this kingdom coming, to be people of love, to be communities of loving kindness, of mercy, to be individuals who are walking humbly with God and communities walking humbly with God, all of this powered by justice and humility and love. I think it's really hard for us to turn around and and to face God. And here's why, I think it's because When we do that, we have to face our past. And sometimes it's not even just like what happened in like way in the past, it might be this morning, might be yesterday or this week or last month. And it's hard to look at those things. But the people in Zechariah's time, when God was asking them to turn around and look at him and they were looking at their past, it was very different for them. Because now for us, when we turn around and we look at the face of God and we see God's love in God's eyes, we are looking through the cross. And that is a powerful difference and a powerful reality. That is how God's going to accomplish all these things. God has accomplished it, God will accomplish it, and we will get to join in from now until then. When we look back at our lives and what we've done and what's been done to us, we look through the cross and it's empty because he's not there anymore. He's living in our lives if we want that to be the case. I'm gonna invite the communion service to come up in the band and we're gonna, we're gonna celebrate communion like we always do. And I love that we've been doing this every week for a couple years now because I think it helps us remember why we have to return so often, why we have to return to Jesus who said, remember me. This is why you have to remember that my body was given for you, my blood was shed for you because it's hard to keep your eyes on me. And if your eyes are not on me, you can't see the dreams God says, you can't see the dreams I have for you. In my eyes, you can see the dreams I have for you. They're bigger. They're bigger than the dreams you have for yourself. To be people who join into the restoration project of God, that's huge. And so I think we join in with these people back that Zachariah was writing about who say, God, when is your kingdom gonna come? I know I feel like I'm asking that question all the time. God, make wrong things right. God, we need you to be a healer. We need to see healing. My heart is broken on a weekly basis because of something that happens in my life or someone that I know or something that I see in the news or something that I watch happen. And so we ask that question, God, when is your kingdom gonna come? Is it gonna come soon? And Zechariah reminds us that God whispers back to us, will you be ready? Will you be ready to join in? Will you be ready to participate in the dreams that I have for you? Because they are beyond your comprehension. They will blow your mind. They are bigger than the tiny dreams that you have. Let me show you, but you have to return to me so I can return to you because all of those dreams require my presence. And so today we come up and we say, I want your presence in my life, God. And we might have to do that tomorrow and we'll do that again through communion next week. We can't give up. God never runs out of chances. God never runs out of chances for us to return to God. And so if you're somebody who's seeking after Jesus today, you can participate in communion with us. We just formed two lines here. It's gluten-free bread and some juice, and you can just dip it into the cup. We'll have some people to pray for you over here. We'd love to pray for you for anything. And I just wanna say, if you're somebody here today who just knows, you know, that part of this ability to see, to return to God is hard for you because you really haven't been with God before. You haven't made that commitment to say, Jesus, I don't understand it all, but I want you to be my leader. I don't understand it all, but I know I need forgiveness and grace and and I need you to be my savior. I don't understand it, but I'm choosing you because it's only then that you can begin to unlock the dreams that God has for you in your life. And so if today is that first day, maybe coming forward is that for you. Tell somebody that that's that day for you. It's the most important decision that you can make. So we'll move into this time of communion. Come when you're ready, the band will lead us. And please let us pray for you as you go by.